God speaks to us in John 20, 11 through 18. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. Hey, good morning. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Ben. I get to... um... I'm one of the elders here, but get to serve as lead pastor here in Shawnee, and uh, really are glad that you guys are here. If you have any questions about the church, if you need anything at all, man, we would love to talk with you guys. I'll be down front after this uh, service is over. I'd love to pray with you, talk with you about anything, um, or also you can just hit, up, hit us up on email, and uh, we would love to meet with you and tell you anything that, that you need to know. Okay, we're starting a series this this Sunday called Forgotten Father. It'll be a four-week um, series, and um, this series really comes out of um, just a, we have a preaching team that gets together, and, um, and we'll just pray about and see, like, man, what, what we feel like the church needs to hear right now. We preach through the Bible, and, um, and one of the things that we feel is, is so important is um, for us to reclaim a real and true Trinitarian theology. We are, we are great at worshiping the Son. We are great at worshiping, well, we're good at worshiping the Spirit. About half of us are good at worshiping the Spirit. We trust the Son. We love the Son, Jesus. Um, most of us trust the Spirit. Uh, most of us love the Spirit. But if I were to ask you, how do you feel about Father God? God the Father. I'm not sure that you would know how to respond. I'm not sure that you would know sort of what categories to put him in, because I wouldn't have either. But there's a reality to our faith that it becomes lacking when we don't have a holistic faith, which is a fully Trinitarian faith. God is one God existing in three persons. Father, Son, and Spirit. All three are God. All three are different than each other. However, all three are the same. Somebody explain that. Trinity is wonderful and beautiful, and at the same time, it is higher than us. It's a mystery. We love the Son, we love the Spirit. But Father God probably does all kinds of things to our heart. We think about our own dads. We think about ourselves as dads. All of a sudden, 
the concept of God as Father is a little harder to understand and a little harder to trust. Proper view of God is an understanding and a deep love for who God is in His entirety. Three in one. All of the same heart. All of the same mind. All of the same love. And all of the same view towards humanity. How we feel about Father God cannot be isolated from how we feel about the Son or how we feel about the Spirit. If we do that, then we have become accidentally heretical. Heresies that have been um, disposed of and exposed in the church. Tritheism, which would say that there are three gods. God the Father is a God, God the Son is a God, and God the Spirit is a God. And then on the other ditch is modalism, which would say that, well, there's one God, but he has kind of three different personalities depending on the time or effort or need. Both of those are heretical. And we would say, yeah, that's right, yeah, heresy. But the way that we function, the way that we practice, is we believe in both of those in the way that we view God the Father. We would much rather go to the more approachable Jesus the Son. We would much rather listen to um, the Holy Spirit who he's a little more in touch with my feelings. And then God the Father is, well, surely he's the angry one that's mad at humanity and he's so demanding. It's heresy. Three in one of the same heart, of the same mind, of the same love, and of the same view towards you individually and towards all of humanity. In the history of the church, uh, we've really missed this a lot. There's been renewal that's happened and where the focus has been on a person of the Trinity. Obviously, revivals and renewals um, will be sparked by the Holy Spirit, where there's even been renewals that are sparked by the Holy Spirit and then focused on the Holy Spirit, the Brownsville Revival. And um, when the Spirit moved in the, in the 60s um, in Roman Catholic Church, but also in Protestant churches. And then again in the 90s, and what you had at Brownsville, and then what you had in Toronto and the Kansas City uh, prophets, they were called, and how it made its way into Oklahoma City. And there was this great, amazing uh, renewal of the gifts and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We needed that. We need the gifts and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And then you also had a renewal movement in the 60s on into the 70s called the Jesus Movement, which was a renewal movement centered around the sun. And what we need, I'm just witnessing this because I'm watching it happen in our country and in our world. There is a, there is a gap in our understanding of God. We are losing our understanding and our trust and our love for Father God. And it shows up in the way that we treat each other, the way we treat ourselves, and the way that we view our own existence. We need, right now, we need a renewal of the Father, the heart of the Father, who is over us, who we are under, who we are sons and daughters of, who we seek to obey, who Jesus obeyed perfectly on our behalf. 
Everything that's happened in the church is right and true, but it's not whole because it stops short. We love renewals of the Spirit. We love signs and wonders, but we stop short of... We like the signs and wonders of Jesus, but we stop short of the obedience of Jesus to the Father. So our holiness is lacking. Our maturity is lacking. And where we should have grown up to solid food now, we're still in need of milk because of our understanding or lack of understanding of Father God. This greatly affects our prayer life. It greatly affects our own pursuit of righteousness. It keeps grown men in boyhood. We need a Trinitarian theology, holistic Father, Son, and Spirit. If I were to ask you today, what does it mean to be fathered by God? To think of fathering as a verb. What does it mean to be fathered by God? How would you respond? Have you even thought in those terms? Has it crossed your mind? I mean, a lot of our immediate reactions to being fathered by God the Father have to do with how we've experienced fatherhood on earth. And all of our reactions have to do with how little we know and are committed to knowing Father God. Not knowing God as Father keeps us from growing up. It has consequences to our obedience, our understanding of the gospel, our life in faith. And it also enhances sin, fear, guilt, and shame in our life. There are three major mistakes we make about God the Father. The first is this. One major mistake we make about God the Father is this. The idea that God is Father to everyone. The Greeks had a philosophy about God, lowercase g, that there was a one God who was an all-father to the gods, but also an all-father to humanity. And because he created humanity, he was therefore their parent as well, totally accepting of them as kids. That's false. It's a pagan interpretation of all-father. It's a pagan interpretation of God as parent. And then the Old Testament speaks cautiously about God's fatherhood to make sure and communicate the separation of God and man. See, the whole Bible is about one thing. It's about Jesus and the story of redemption through Jesus. And so in the Old Testament, what you have is there's a, it's confusing to us because we tend to think of, well, God was a little different in the Old Testament. He was kind of mean, less patient. Well, there was a real problem with People thinking that God was a little too accessible and God is trying to tell an entire story in the Old Testament and New Testament culminating in the person work of Jesus. So what we have is God trying to tell his story in the Old Testament that you are separated because of the rebellion in the garden. And then in the New Testament, we see a new relationship to the Father because of the work of the Son. The concept that God is Father to all is only true in the sense that He created everyone and everything. However, in the sense that He becomes our personal Father, 
as would any father who has children, this is not universal. For God to become our Father happens only through the work of the Son by the power of the Spirit to bring us into adoption. God is not the Father of everyone. God is the Father of those who have said yes to Jesus by the power of the Spirit and submitted their life to Him. That's what it means to be saved. It's according to Ephesians, to enter into the commonwealth of the family of God. One great book that I would recommend that you get, I've really loved so far, is called The Forgotten Father by Thomas Smell. And he says this, Jesus does not teach us the general truth that God has always been the father of everybody. He delivers the good news that God is his father and wills to be ours also as we are drawn into the very same relationship of obedience and trust that Jesus showed in Gethsemane. The fatherhood of God is not the banal and ultimately boring generality defined by philosophy. It is that which is defined in the death and resurrection of Jesus and revealed by the operation of the Holy Spirit. The Our Father is not the prayer of all men. You remember that? Our Father who art in heaven. It's not the prayer of all men, but it is the prayer of disciples who are following him who said Abba in the garden and on the cross. God's fatherhood is Christologically defined and charismatically revealed. He is not the father of everyone. That's one mistake we make. The second mistake is this, the concept that there is an angry father and a loving son. The idea that God the Father is only angry at humanity. And if it were not for Jesus stepping in with compassion, we would be doomed because of the Father's hatred towards us. This is heretical. It is a broken idea of the Trinity because John 3.16 marks the work and heart of the Father for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. In John 14, we see Jesus get frustrated, which he does a lot in John. In John 10, he says to Jews, he says, I and the Father are one. And then in John 14, he's got his disciples, Philip particularly, who says, show us the Father. And Jesus gets frustrated. I can't, uh, one, of our, one of our staff members this week, we were talking about this, and he said, man, I can't imagine what Jesus must have been like to respond to Philip. He's probably so mad at him, just like, when are you going to get it? Here's what Jesus responded to with Jesus, I mean with uh, Philip. Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? He's baffled. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or, if you don't believe Jesus, believe on the account of the works themselves. We have to push back the darkness of belief that Jesus is the good guy and the Father is the perfectionist who's only ever angry at us and not getting it right. God is three in one. And the third mistake is this, that God the Father has all the baggage that we have and also the baggage of our fathers. This is dangerous, but it's also really hard to overcome. The notion that Father God must operate and have the same failings that we have 
also the same baggage that we have and the same character flaws that we have and that our fathers have is dangerous. How do you view God the Father? How have you experienced your own dad? I, I come from a broken home. I haven't had good experiences. Our projections of our own experiences with our own fathers and even our own selves because there are a lot of dads in the room who know I've not gotten it right. I've done some, I've had some horrible thoughts, horrible things. I, I've been moody and if God the Father's like me, I don't want to, I don't want to be around him. We project ourselves, our humanity on God the Father, and we forget that he fathers perfectly. He is a perfect father, and you're not. God is distant. God is moody. We don't know what he's going to be like. When's he ever going to be pleased? He's unpredictable, unapproachable, God the Father is. We can't approach God the Father. He's so demanding. He's a perfectionist. How can I predict his attitude? He's so moody and outlandish and he wants me to do something without telling me how to do it. Or God, the Father's never satisfied. He's really picky. He wants it his way. He plays favorites. God, the Father, is abusive in some way. Or he has an agenda against us. He doesn't understand me. He doesn't care to understand me. He just wants it his way, and that's it, and doesn't want to explain. And These are all the things that I feel. We project our failings and our Father's failings on the perfect Father. And it's not right. He is other. He is different than you or me. In his perfection, God reveals himself to us in his son's perfection. Through his son, we see Jesus. We see Jesus, we see the Father. Look at Jesus, his heart, his compassion, his acceptance, his love, obedience. He said, I and the Father are one. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. You want to know what the Father is like? Look at Jesus. So here in our text today, we have a story, and it's a beautiful story. Mary standing outside the tomb. Jesus, her teacher, her family, her Messiah, has just been beaten to death, murdered. She witnessed that. Just get inside the story a little bit. Outside the tomb where her teacher and friend and Messiah and the one she banked on, her hope, all of her hope, has now been brutally murdered. And she's standing in looking at an empty tomb. And because of her despair and her hopelessness and her fear, 
She doesn't think not once did he rise like he said he would. She just thinks somebody stole his body. This is despair. John 20 is the story of us. Mary has lost something. She's lost her friends, she's lost her teacher, but more important than anything, she's lost her family. First thing that we see and we identify with is in verse 11 and 13 is our loss of family. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Just imagine this lady. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? It's not very good bedside manner for the angels. Pretty black and white. And she said to them, this is sad. They've taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. That is a desperately hurt, desperately sad, desperate woman. The Bible says that somebody is crying. That means they were really crying. And it mentions twice that she was weeping. They've taken away my Lord. This is a woman who loved Jesus. This is her family. Imagine the turmoil and sadness here. She looks at an empty tomb of death and is overcome with the reality of it all. It's sobering and settling to us. Tomb represents something that just, uh, not just her, but to us as well. We stand in a world that looks like death and decay. Hopes. All the things that we put our trust in, our dreams. If you haven't experienced it at this point in your life, you will. The things that you hope in will eventually fail. Death comes for everybody. It overtakes the world. It's part of the curse. The fall. We stand looking in this tomb, this brokenness, this reality check of like, what happened? What happened to the thing I put my trust in? What happened to the life that I want? What happened to the people that I thought I was going to live with? And what happened to these dreams that I have and all this hope? We're staring into an abyss like Mary and thing that she had hoped in has been taken from her. Our hopes as well, our hope in self, our hope in money, even our hope in our parents. Parents, forgive me, but this is real. What I'm about to say is every kid, and a lot of college students will probably come to this realization, every kid, if you have decent parents, you somewhat idolize your parents, and at some point, you've come to realize that your parents need a savior. <laughs> and that changes everything. Because if your parents need a savior, then how much more do you need a savior? And then, as it goes on, you start to even more realize, like, man, my dad is not who I thought he was. He's not God. And if your dad was sensible, he would say, yeah, I've been trying to tell you that. <laughs> I'm not God. You need actual God, not me. Mom's the same, for, especially for daughters in the room. It's your idea of your mom is 
the superwoman. And you realize at some point that she's not. And she would say, yeah. I've tried to tell you, you need a savior. Our hope in money, our hope in parents, or this one especially right now, your hope in America. Your hope in your country. Our hope in nationalism. What do you do when that comes crumbling down? When you find your wall built of brick and you start removing some of those bricks, how does your wall stabilize? Well, it doesn't. It falls down, man. When your house is built on those things, it doesn't take much for it to crumble. And then you get to the foundation and you realize, my house wasn't even built on rock. What happens to Mary at the tomb is profound and it represents our lives staring into the abyss of hopelessness to go like, what I thought was going to happen didn't happen. Now where does my hope come? The second thing that happens to Mary is profound in every way and in a turn, in an instant, Mary's sorrow turns to joy. She had lost her family and now her family's about to be restored. In verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. It's interesting. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, which is funny, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, imagine this moment. She is had a conversation with resurrected Jesus and doesn't know who he is. And he says to her, Mary, calls out her name. Immediately she knows who he is. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, which is Jesus' language, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. There's a few things to point out here. Mary stands outside an empty tomb where her family was laid, and in one instance, she realizes something and comes to two astonishing truths. This is amazing. In an instant, things change. One, Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. He was dead. Now he's alive, and he's revealed himself to me. That is unbelievable. The tomb is empty. The second is this. Jesus is alive, and she has family again. And now she has family with a resurrected king. Mary's belief in the resurrection of Jesus only comes after he calls out her name. This is the gospel. If you wonder how is it that we come by salvation, it is this. Jesus himself calls out our name, and that's how we automatically see there is a God, and it's him. She had a conversation with Jesus and was talking with him and supposed he was the gardener and all she could think about was resurrected God in front of her and she's thinking about dead God where they've taken his body. And it wasn't until he said her name that her identity changed. And now, she's a new person. She's got a new family. Jesus has paid the penalty now. He's conquered death. However, he still has work to do. He has atoned for us. He has resurrected. He's done it, but there's still work to do. 
He has to ascend to the Father. This is how, this is God now having stood in for man to satisfy the demands of God because of the love of God. Now just think about that. I'm going to say it again because that's the work of the Trinity. God now having stood in for man to satisfy the demands of God because of the love of God. That's the gospel. Our confidence in the cross is not first of all dependent on its influence upon us. Rather, its influence upon us depends upon the fact that quite apart from us, the Son has offered a perfect obedience and offering for sin to His Father. And that in the resurrection, the Father has said yes to the Son, to His work, and therefore to us on whose behalf it was undertaken. That is amazing. Jesus' death and resurrection is the story of God Himself coming to obey God the Father fully and completely and in turn offer back to God Himself as a total and completely sufficient sacrificial payment for us. And Mary, along with us, are restored to the Father that so loved the world that He gave His Son. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? God loves us that He sent God the Son and Himself in God the Son to come and pay the penalty that we owe to God on our behalf. And because of His work, because of Jesus' work, we're not only atoned for, but we're also restored to the family of God the Father. Jesus now becomes something other. Jesus becomes our sibling. He becomes our better older brother. That is amazing. And God the Father oversees us, patriarch of the family of God. The atoning work of Jesus is profound. The atoning work of Jesus is deep, and it's true. However, it's not all of the truth. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus now doesn't call his disciples his disciples. He calls them his brothers. Because of the work of Jesus, we have an older brother. We have a sibling in Jesus, and we have a father in Father God. We now have a new reality of family. Jesus, our older brother, and Father God is our true father, and this does something for us. It sets us a seat at a table of eternity. It's where we have family, brothers and sisters, along with Jesus under God the Father. It's amazing. It's amazing. We need more than ever before a Trinitarian faith. We need to love and understand and know God the Father. Three in one, through the work of the Son, by the power of the Spirit, we are siblings sons and daughters of God, along with Mary, along with the disciples, brothers and sisters.